Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm really excited to be speaking with Matthew Kidman, the founder and portfolio manager at Centennial Asset Management. Centennial run a Australian equities fund that focuses mainly on small caps and has a track record of compound annual growth rates of the 17 to 18%. So it's done very, very well. We talked to Matthew in this episode about his background being raised on a farm and being around small business all of his life, as well as his background and profession prior to coming into the investment area in journalism and how that has helped him become a better investor as well as his time at Wilson Asset Management and what he learned there. And we talk about his outlook on the market. Please remember this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be specific advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Also, please remember to keep your feedback coming through. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. Matthew Kidman, welcome to Inside the Rope. G'day David, thanks for having me. Not a problem. We like to kick off the podcast for our listeners with uh, our guests giving a bit of a background about themselves. So perhaps you could do that for the benefit of the listeners. So I grew up in a small town called Collingambly in the Riverina. The benefit of that was I got to follow both rugby league and VFL as it was in those days. So I've got to carry the burden of two teams. Go for the Roosters and the Hawks in Melbourne, which is no good living in Sydney. You're an, you're an outsider, but I don't mind that. Small business rice farm. So always associated with small businesses. Um, later in life, my wife, now wife, then partner, has had a couple of um, espresso bars, as we call them, coffee shops in those days, $2 stores. So that, that's kind of why I got interested in businesses. Um, studied economics law at Macquarie University. Mm-hmm. and then decided to become a journalist. So my first real job was out of Campbelltown, where I'd been to boarding school. So I went back out to Campbelltown and worked on the MacArthur Chronicle for a year and got graded as a journalist. And then lucky enough, as we came out of the recession in the early 90s, there were jobs going in the Metropolitan newspapers and then spent four and a half years at the Sydney Morning Herald in the business section, ended up as the business editor, which was more title than reality. Still had a, um, um, a boss to report to and basically just did rounds, but learned a lot about the market. That was my exposure to the market. First investment wasn't until I was 27. Never had any money, no one was interested in the market at home. It was all about investing in the farm and went with the first Telstra tranche one. Mm-hmm. Made some money, bought me a plane ticket overseas. So I thought this is pretty good. And then about a year and a half after that, I was lucky enough to get a job with Jeff Wilson at Wilson Asset Management. And the reason that came about was Jeff had left Prubash. He wanted to set up Wilson Asset Management. And he said, I want to write a book. Will you help me? And so we started writing a book. And then I said, look, I'm going to leave the paper. I've got a job with someone else or an offer um, in, the, in the funds management game. And he came back the next day and said, look, my business can't afford it. I've got no money under management. You can't work for someone else if you're writing a book with me come and work with me. And he said, I'll pay you up front for the first year. Do you want to do it? And I said, sounds good to me. And that's where it started. So what's in the water over there or was in the water over there? Because you're now the second. We've had Chris Stott from 1851. Yeah, I've worked for Chris for a while. Um, We've also had Peter Cooper on the podcast. And everyone talks about the Cooper Cubs, all of the people who have come out and started their own portfolio management businesses or in the funds management industry, but now I'm starting to see a bit of a trend around 
what's come out of Wilson as well. So was there anything in particular about that that you think bred good managers? I think so. It, it's been around for a long time. It's, it's succeeded, so that helps. So you get a lot of people that go through there. It's a big place now. It's different to when I, I started with Jeff. I started about four months after he started. It was just the two of us. And he said to me at the time, look, I'm stuck inside the office on the phone all the time. I want to get out and see companies. So your first job is just to book me in to see companies. And you can come along if you want. And so it was very much unstructured. But it was successful. Jeff, Jeff was a great investor. He was a good trader as well. He'd been a broker. And what, we got really lucky. And, and I learned a lot off Jeff. Like he said, this is how you go about looking at companies. And he said, just look at the cash flow on the balance sheet. I don't want you to look at P&Ls. Don't talk to me about P&Ls. I want cash flow on balance sheet. So that was good training from the ground up. And then we were lucky enough that David Paradise mm -hmm. was leaving Mercantile Mutual. And he was looking for somewhere to sit. And he came and sit with, sat with us in the office next door, even though he was a competitor up on Macquarie Street. And he brought along a couple of guys, Alan Crozier and David Smith. David now works up in Singapore. And so there was this funny thing. There was two older guys. It was David and Jeff, and they were good mates. And there was me, Alan, and David Smith. And we were the young, gun, oh yeah, young guns, as we called ourselves. And we go around and see companies together. So it, it fostered a really good environment. It was a lot of fun. And we covered a lot of ground. The first couple of years, the performance was good, so we could grow. And I think it was just that the guys at the top, and, and David had his own business, but for two or three years we were there together. David and Jeff just, they liked investing. They had a great eye. They worked on their business really hard. And it gave everyone a chance to do and prosper underneath. They, they gave us this great avenue to do stuff. And we liked it and we grew and, and so on. You know, it, it was fun. Terrific. What skills did you acquire from being a journalist that's made you a better investor? It's a good question. Journalism has one or two things I would say that works for you. It's got a lot of, it, it took me about a year when I went and worked for Jeff to look at something, uh, you know, a company or a situation. And for the first year I'd say, geez, that'd make a good story. And that, that was the wrong thing because you had to work out from a different angle. So it took me a while to adjust. But the two things it did give me was that you, what you do as a fund manager is sit at a desk or in the middle and you collect information. And you're paying people in various ways to get that, whether it's brokers, whether it's other fund managers, whether it's industry contacts, whether it's, of course, the companies. And so you've got to disseminate a lot of information. As a journalist, you get that. You, you, every day, what you've got to do is look at a story interview someone, read a lot and say there's one point that matters for the head of the story. Now, it's not too much different with investing at any one time. And David Paradise made this really clear to me. He said, Matthew, there's only two or three things that are going to move a stock. Everyone can analyse stock, do the model. You've got to, as a fund manager, pick that couple of things that are going to change the share price. So that's really important. The second thing I would say would be that it gives you the smell test. So I'm in small companies mainly, and you're dealing with a lot of different people. And it's, and, and there are a lot of startups, and there are a lot of um, colourful characters, and you've got to sift through it. And part of your job is work out who's real and who's not, who's mm -hmm. giving you um, solid information, and, a lot of the t and who is not. And a lot of the time, because there's so many different industries, you rely on the companies to educate you, because we're generalists, we're not experts. So that, that's really important. So that smell test about, and, that, 
And people will say, oh, they lied to us and this and that. Well, that's part of your job, unfortunately. And occasionally you'll get it wrong. And so I think journalism gave me those kind of skills. And what are the common red flags that you come across as a journalist and as a fund manager? Oh, look, the great thing that we've got, there's, there's two red flags that I always look at. The great thing that we've got is the ability to meet with people who run the company. So at the big end of town, it's a lot harder. There's a lot more layers. But we go straight to the CEO, the CFO, the chairmen, the board members. We're lucky we get access. And you, you can quickly sum up whether you think someone... Well, most people are good. Most people are trying to do the right thing. There's some brilliant people at one end. There's a lot of people who are decent in the middle. And then there's that tail. So it's a bell curve. And the people in the middle, generally, you're just trying to work out whether their business is going okay. You're not trying to... to but the people at the bottom end, you've got to look out for the signs that something's wrong. So I'll give you a quick, quick example. So there's a little company called Experience Co, which you might know, EXP. Mm-hmm. Good company. They do mainly skydiving, but they've bought different tourism assets up and down the coast. The founder of that business came out of like the equivalent to the SAS, crack troops, and he was this... Gun-ho guy, young guy, very good to start a company, fearless. Um, bought, you know, he, he was doing skydiving. Anyway, one day we decided to, when I say we, my partner Gary Joffe and I, in July to go and visit him at Wollongong and see how their skydiving went. Anyway, he said, look, planes are being um, um, the service today, so there's nothing going, but there's one plane here, do you want to go up and do a jump? And I said, oh, I've done a jump before, I don't want to do it. And Gary said, no. He said, jump in anyway, I'll show you the... I'll show you the um, the run and how we do it. So he gets in the plane, he's a pilot, takes off, it's all fine. He said, we go out here and we drop them on the beach. And he said, these these planes, they, they feel light, but they're strong. And he goes, I'll show you. He turned off the engine, stalled it. And we dropped 500 feet. And I, I suffered badly from motion sickness. And, and I thought I was <laughs> gonna be sick. And he looked at me, he goes, you don't look so well. When he cranked the engine back up again. And I said, one, I didn't feel comfortable. And two, I'm gonna throw up. And he said, well, I've just had the plane cleaned. You can't throw up in here. Do it in your shoe. And I went, I'm looking at him and going, you're kidding. And he said, and then he forgot me. And then he said, look, when we go back, we've got to fly back really quick because the plane unloads and we can get back, we're lighter. And so instead of just turning around, he flipped it over and turned around and shot back. And and I looked at him and, and I was green by this stage. And when we got back, I crawled out and lay on the tarmac for 15 minutes. And we got back inside. He's going, that was fun, wasn't it? We got back the next day and I said to Gary, that guy's too reckless. We, we've got to sell that stock we own. Like, if that's how he's treating people. He's, he's reckless about his, his business. He's entrepreneurial. He's got yep. the business up and running, but we can't give him our money to manage. It's just too much risk involved. So you get that, you get that access. And so, you, you know, I could tell you four or five different stories like that, but you, you kind of can read... You know, is, is this person the person you want to manage your money? And a lot of the times you say, well, no, it's not. Sure. So let's fast forward to today and the business you're in today and the role you're in today. Can you give us an outline of that? Yeah. Me? So the little bit of history is that I left Wilson Asset Management after 13 years. It was great. I stayed on the boards for a little while and for three or four years. And that was terrific because Jeff listed a number of LICs and it was all fun. Got on really well with them. It was a great departure. The idea was to manage my own money, and and that went well. Gary Joffe joined me. He'd been at Elliston. Mm-hmm. But after three or four years in 2015, we realised we were drifting. We couldn't keep the same model. If you've got three or $400 million of your own money, people will treat you like an institution. If you've got something as a percentage of that, then it fades after a while, your contacts. So we said, well, let's, 
let's keep managing the money the way we would manage as individuals, but let's build a small fund. And so in 2015, we formed Centennial. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to take $150 million of outside money if we could raise it, if we were good enough, um, but not change the way we manage the money, which has got ultimate flexibility. Um, we're, we're allowed to basically do, within parameters, do whatever. We can be 100% cash, we can be 100% of one stock. We concentrate on small caps, but we're, we can be big caps as well. Jurisdiction, Australia only? Australia, Australia, New Australia. Zealand, that's it. Um, but, but that flexibility. And, and equities only? Equities only, all no cash. No derivatives of? Oh no, we can do derivatives, but we've only ever done that once, and that was when the uh, COVID crisis hit. Mm -hmm. and we were trying to get a bit of protection on the downside. What I learned from that was derivatives are highly volatile. I don't think I'll go there again. One of the ways I take a shortcut to how business or how managers actually manage the money is to work out how they're paid. So what's the model for remuneration? Yep. And, and is it benchmarked, for instance? I always have been concerned where you know, they don't align. Yeah, so we're totally index unaware. Mm -hmm. And, and that's real, even though we do small caps and we look at the indexes every month and we feel sick when we've underperformed like everyone else. But the reality is we build from scratch up. So we'll have 40 or 50 stocks, mm -hmm. um, ma mainly um, small caps, as I said, depending on their liquidity, you know, will be between one and 5% holdings. Mm -hmm. But because we were managing our own money, we never took a salary and it was just a management company. And so we just get whatever we make at the end of the year. And the idea was to do better than cash back then, really, yep. by taking you know, a reasonable amount of risk because we're in small caps. So what we do is we do one and a quarter mm -hmm. percent mm -hmm. and 20% over a 5% hurdle with, with a high watermark. Over cash? Uh, well, 5%. 5% over cash hurdle. No, no, no. Back, back then, the cash rate when we started was like three or four, and we said, too late, let's, let's just do it at 5%. It's 5% yes. absolute. Since then, cash has gone south. Yes. Um, but the idea mentally was to do it as we want to deliver you a premium over cash. But we said, you can't have the cash rate at the moment. Let's just go with 5%. And so why, why do we do the one and a quarter? Well, the idea was we didn't want to get any bigger than 150. Mm -hmm. Today, we've got about 190 um, and we think we can manage 250, but that's seven years on. Mm -hmm. Of that 250, and this is where the model changes a bit, about $35 million is the principles. Mm -hmm. And so on average, how do I get paid? About three to four times um, the management fee comes from the performance because the unit's in the trust. We sit in the trust, all our money, all our disposable income outside our homes sits in the trust. So, you know, if you, if you make 100 grand from your performance, uh, typically it adds up to about 400 grand for me in the fund. So, yeah, so it's, it's a funny model in that sense that the bulk of the earnings Yes. Sits with your units in the trust, yeah. And, and how has the performance since inception been? Look, we tell everyone that we, what we do is, and I just took this from the wham, I, I didn't change too much to how Jeff taught me how to invest is how I invest. Um, it, it, we did 18% gross mm -hmm. under wham, and since we started, we've done 17.8 again. I don't know why, it's pretty consistent. Um, and, but if you look at the risk we take, like I, I don't want to bore the listeners, but something like a sharp ratio, we're off the charts. Our correlation with the market is way, way down. So I suppose it's that index unaware. Um, and you know, it's proven again this year. So we had a, a pretty good January. Mm -hmm. um, okay, February, 
terrible relative March, but we're up in March, but March rebounded. So, you know, we, 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 we're not correlated too much. We just want to try and knock out those returns on a consistent basis. And can you give us uh, an idea of your style and how you go about it? Maybe talk us through a live example through your research process and how it comes to be from sort of idea generation through to pulling the trigger? Yeah, so it was interesting. I, I, you had Chris Stott on a few weeks ago, and Chris <coughs> actually took over from me at WAM. And um, he, I'm, I'm guessing a bit, but I think he, we worked together maybe six years, mm -hmm. and he, he was my analyst. So a lot of the things Chris said, I said, oh, that sounds you know, pretty similar. But we, we learned from Jeff, and we kind of, you put your own bits and bells and whistles to it. So how do we go about it? Well, we mainly look at small caps. We mainly look at industrials. Biotech's too hard for me, too binary, especially in Australia. Unfortunately, mining's not my strong point. I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s when mining was tough, mm -hmm. um, before the boom in 07. I mean, we'll do a bit of mining, but so that's the universe. That, and we're generalists, so we do tech, retail, industrial, finance, whatever you want. So how do we identify it? We, we go through a, a system of, we're basically GARP, and, and occasionally you get to be a deep value person. So happy to play that game. But that comes along once in 10 years. You can only be Ben Graham after a crash. The rest of the time, you've got to work out, well, what is a business worth? So we, we try and work out with the industry it's in. So we try and rate from the, the earnings growth over the next couple of years, the price you're paying, the balance sheet's really key, as I said before, and, and I, I, didn't, I didn't elaborate on that too much, but balance sheet's really key, cash flow, and then we look for a catalyst. So if it's the right price for the industry it's in and the growth it's got, then, then we'll try and identify it. So, so how does that work? Um, you know, there, there, there'll be, at the, the moment, one of our bigger positions is a little um, um, effectively finance company called Generation Development. It used to be Ostock, the broker. Mm -hmm. Sitting in Ostock was a thing called a life bond where, where you, you, it's a special license granted by the government and pre-superannuation, it was one of the ways to invest tax effectively. And they basically got mothballed. There was only six or seven of them in Australia. They got mothballed, with superannuation being the much preferred option. But super's tapping out now. There's limits on super. So all of a sudden, the light bond's back. And it allows you to invest in, a, in, a, in, a, in an instrument for 10 years and defer your tax over that period. So no one's really pushing it hard, except the old Ostock, which is now called Generation Development, run by the combination of Rob Coombs, old Westpac um, op operative, um, as chairman and Grant Hackett, yeah, Hackett the swimmer. Yeah. yeah. And so we watched it for a long time, was in it, then it got too expensive. And then and then it, it just got too expensive and you saw a lot of people come out. And one of the things we look at very closely is who's in a stock. We don't want too many other institutions in a stock. We like to get it early because we're small and we're always going to stay small. So those big behemoths that are a billion dollars. So they all came out and all of a sudden it was trading at a ridiculous multiple compared to the funds that had under management. And so we started to um, buy that. And we've held it for the best part of three years and under Grant's leadership, it's grown and grown and grown. And it's outperformed what we thought. That's the great thing. Sometimes it does better than you think. A lot of the time it doesn't. And we've just gone for the ride. Today it's not cheap. So you're backing the ability of the managers. We still think it's worth a bit more than it is. It's probably worth um, in, in the dollar 75 range and the other bell and whistle they've put to it recently the other arm is an annuity product that goes up against challenger which mm -hmm. they've just got approval for in the run so 
we look at all those things. So we thought management was really good. We thought it was cheap. We thought the growth from that bottom point, it was more about who was in the stock, why it was low, not the operations, which is great. Balance sheet was good. Rob fixed that and the outlook was good and they had growth. So that's a bit of an example. And are there any parts of the industry you've flagged a few biotech and otherwise that you just won't go? I guess if I could reshape it is how aggressive will you get on valuation if you really like the position of the company, but earnings haven't turned up yet? Oh, or, okay. Or, or yeah. it's going to ramp. Will, will you buy into some of these technology stories, some of these that have come off greatly in the last two months? Yeah, it, the natural inclination is not to. We would prefer to see a profitable company, but a company that's funding itself, it's got good cash flow and the balance sheet looks all right. That, that's, as I said, where we start. But in the last four or five years, up until probably six months ago, you were, if you wanted to perform, you were forced to look at these other businesses, which is a problem with the market. You've got to, your natural place is not always where you want to be, but sometimes the market forces you into a spot. Like I was saying before, at the moment, it's all about resources. Not my cup of tea, but reality is you've got to be there. In the lead up to 2021, with the decline in interest rates, you, you had to look at companies and, and sometimes invest in companies that the earnings promise was down the track a long way and they were burning money. We always took the view that if you're gonna play that game, stay in the liquid stocks. Um, and, and that's what I like about being an all cap manager. You know, be in a zero. Don't, don't be in a small cap that might promise you something. Because the other thing is, as bull markets go on, and, and they did in tech, the allocation of capital from the overall market gets worse. They start putting money in, in companies that are never going to give you a return. And with the tech boom that went on, and I think it's ended, it's, um, you know, they went down and down, deeper and deeper, and stories about disruption and all that. Who knows if they're real? It, by the time you find out, it's too late. So we kind of tried to stay in the bigger end where we thought there was a model building. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the days of, um, you know, the REAs and the car sales and the Sikhs that were early, yeah, I don't think you're going to get those again. So we're happy that that's over. <laughs> that part of the market where the promise is five years down the track and we're going to spend whatever and we're going to burn your capital until we get to a market position. Um, so we're very tentative. I mean, there will be examples over the years. And there's a company who I think is okay, High Pages. We still own it. Mm-hmm. It's been derated significantly. Um, but there's not many that we, we were comfortable going into in that area. And what's your view of markets at the moment? I, you know, it seems very unusual that we've almost got three events independently running concurrently that each one in their own could lead to markets being off 20% circa in, in normal times. You know, we've got a global pandemic um, with supply issues surrounding that. We've got a Federal Reserve in the largest economy in the world signaling and telling markets that rates are going to go up something like six or seven times in the next 18 odd months, which could induce a recession in the largest economy in the world. Uh, and we've also got a war in Europe. And, and how are you grappling with each of those things uh, and, and where we're positioned today? Yeah, I think like most people, fairly badly, mm-hmm. because as you say, I mean, we were of the view that once the Fed started tightening the money supply and making money more expensive, which is now in train, that the market would struggle. But really what's happened is parts of the market have struggled and others have done really well, which is interesting. And, you know, you go back to December, 
power. And you've got to look at the US because that's where most of the world, 40% of the world's capital is and it impacts us all in some way. Powell said in early December, and he's a political creature, that as soon as he got renominated, he said, oh no, inflation is a problem after telling us it wasn't. But he gave the market that in early December, but the market rallied into year end and I can only presume, and we were shocked by that. We thought, oh, here we go. Now the market's going to do a lot of rotating and so on. But I gather the market wanted to hold on to its performance for the year. So it rallied in and it happened in early January, bang. And what happened probably at Christmas time as we're all suffering from Omnicrom, the, the, the Fed was saying two interest rate increases by mid-January, it was four to five. By the time everyone was kind of feeling better and back at work, everything was opening, it was seven to eight. And now we're looking at nine. So the market really got nervous in that period, as we know. And then the war happened. Everyone thought, well, this is even worse. We would have thought that the market might rally, it was oversold, and then go lower again. So now we're in the rally part, and the rally surprised me how strong it is. So how do we, that's just giving you history, so I'm sorry, so it's, it's very confusing. But I think what the market knows is that there's nine interest rate increases this year. They know there's a war in the Ukraine. They know there's supply shortages. Not, that is out there. So if you know that much, it's what's beyond that. So I think the market probably holds in there until they believe that the US Fed has to put the US economy into recession to kill inflation. My suspicion is that's the back end of the year because they would think that the inflation numbers will start to cycle bigger numbers from last year mm -hmm. and it would moderate and eventually idle at a certain level. And inflation itself will cause things to slow down. Uh, so uh, it'll be interesting through the middle part of the year whether we head lower again. At the moment, I think the market knows all that and it says, yeah, I'm prepared to take that on. So I, I, I'm small enough to wait and see what happens. I don't have to make big decisions up front. Play what's in front of me, and that's deliberate, by the way. We don't want to get too big, as I said. We want to manage the money that suits us best. But like everyone else, it is a really tough period. There's been big rotations. There's things that should send the market lower, but it, it's, it knows all that. So don't. market never does what you want. It always upsets you. It always haunts you. Every day, you look at the market and you're psychology and your moods determined by it. You go home, the European markets are open. Then you wake up in the morning, oh, the Dow didn't do what I thought. You know, so it haunts you and it it's not supposed to be your friend. It's supposed to give you headaches and not do what you want. And it's doing that at the moment. And you talked about your variability of being able to hold cash yep. and being quite aggressive on that. Um, what's your cash rate at the moment? Yeah, so in the back end of December, when the Fed changed, we kind of started building it, saying, well, why is the market heading higher? And then by January, when the market did fall, we are about 40-odd percent. And that worked really well. And then by early February, when the war broke out, we kind of thought, well, the market looks a bit oversold. It's been quite aggressive. So we went back, and now we're kind of mid-20s, which mm -hmm. is typically we'd run at 10% cash. Um, we're, not, we're not here to get paid for cash management. It just works occasionally. Like when the coronavirus hit, we... we basically went to 10% cash in 10 days because the world shut down. We had no idea. I'd never seen it before, mm -hmm. just hands off. But we got back on the bike pretty quick um, once the Fed put its shoulder behind the wheel. So we, we will use cash, but we, we only use it sparingly when we think something's changed. And we did think in December it changed, but it took, it took four or five weeks for the market to really react. But so now we'll play, we'll be a little bit more liquid, as I said. You play the liquid game because it is a dangerous market this year. Rates are going up and things are slowing down. 
you know, we've had the stimulus, so don't expect too much from earnings. I, I just going back to the previous question, I suspect the US market still thinks there's a Fed put somewhere. I suspect that, even though they've told you about the nine and that's okay, they're prepared to take that. I suspect in the back of their minds, if things slow down, if the war gets bad, the Fed will go on pause and we won't be too bad. But as I said, if they've got to put them in the recession and maybe do 20 interest rate increases or the equivalent of 20, 25 basis points over three years, that, that could be a different story. So we just got to be careful this year. This is a year about navigating the year, not just picking your companies and saying it's going to be all right. So you think the market's convinced that they will cease QE or will go back to that at some point? I don't know about QE. I think it's more about the, the market in the back of its head said, well, Powell kind of doesn't want to be the recession guy. Mm -hmm. And if it does get to that point and inflation's still high, we're betting that he doesn't. He takes the easy option, which was don't put us in recession. He's not a Volcker, you know, the old... But I don't know, that, that time will come. I'm not second guessing them, but you know, it could be that we get to August, inflation still six, 7% in the US, and he comes out and says, well, we've got to get on top of this inflation. But I think the market thinks he's never done that before. He backs out. So in this great conundrum, and, and I talk about interest rates a lot, we're very much bottom up individual companies, but there is no doubt the one thing you look at, or the two macro things you look at are, overall company earnings and interest rates in my eyes. That's what Jeff taught me that. And I was lucky enough to be, you know, as a journalist, talk to Greg Perry and guys like that when I was younger. And they said, just keep an eye on interest rates, the 10 year bonds, blah, blah, blah. Is that, now everyone looks at it, but to me, it, it resonates in my head. So I'm not prepared to second guess what's gonna happen. I think we're really at the fork in the road to use Kevin Rudd's situation. You have gotta make a decision as late as possible. So Matthew, I'm conscious that it of the time here and they've taken us through a great journey and they've given us a good summary, but also very conscious of your background as a journalist. Yep. What haven't I asked you that I should have asked you? Oh, okay. Um, I think you've asked me most things. I think what what is good about is to try and work out what the philosophy of the person is, because I'm a big believer that the market is open to everyone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exclude. It's It's... There's a position for everyone in the market with different styles, different approaches. You will make money. So to the people out there, don't think you have to do things a certain way. There's only one Buffett, um, only one David Clark, there's only one Matthew Kidman, and we all can bring something to the table, and it really depends on how disciplined you are. So the way I invest, as I said, we look for 13 to 15% growth um, every year on average over a cycle, which I consider three or four years, some years better, some years worse. We've been lucky enough to do between 17 and 18. And what, what would I say? My first investment was 27. Today I'm 53, I'm halfway. I'm halfway to 80. Now I might be on the tools till I'm 80. There might be, I've got to train other people, but I just look at it and say, well, what do we want to achieve? And what we want to achieve is not to get too big, but if I can go from 27 to 80, do the percentages so far, and I'm halfway there, I'll end up with $15,000, $20,000 of capital. I think it was 15 in Telstra. Mm -hmm. We'll end up $120 million when I'm 80. Mm -hmm. And that's how I think about it. And that, that's the philosophy. If you come for a ride with us, that's, that's what you're gonna get. Some years are gonna be better, some years are gonna be worse, some years will be on cash and people will get cranky. But if you go the journey, that's what I want to achieve. And, and, the, and the reason, and I think, 
Gary's aligned with it and, and you know, we'll build out our team. Now as we get older, we need younger people in the room. That, that is the way he would think about it and that is you know, the end game. And why do I do it? Not because I'm greedy, I just want to be independent. So if you ask me what is the one thing that drives me is independence. I don't want anyone to tell me what job I should do or how, you know, how I should um, approach life. That's my decisions within the laws of the country. And I know that's a big thing, but I think you've got to understand how the person thinks about how they'll run their fund because how you're establishing yourself in your work career and, and in how you accumulate wealth is really important. And people should understand that. Um, we encourage people to invest with us, but we're not going to take any more than, as I said, 250. Um, we'll grow it organically from there, but we won't be able to do it. If we're a billion dollar farm, we won't be able to manage the way we have. We'd be too big, too hard, won't be able to pick those companies. So that's the question I would ask, like what's your overall life philosophy? Because most people won't know their answer. Terrific. Matthew, I think that's a fantastic way for us to wrap up the podcast. Matthew Kidman, thanks for joining us in Inside the Road. Thanks very much, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.